You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. With all that said, we've got, uh, as, as with any sort of introductory sermon um, to, to either a series or to a book, we've got a lot of work to do. And so, uh, again, I mentioned it earlier, today is the first Sunday of a- Advent, a, a season during which Christians both uh, celebrate the birth of Jesus, which happened in, in history. And then, of course, we also look forward to uh, the, the imminent return of this same Jesus who will come to reign and rule um, for all eternity. And so um, this Advent, we're going to trace our way through 1 Samuel, which seems like maybe an odd choice to make. In that 1 Samuel is really telling us the story of the rise of King David. It happens um, well before Jesus ever sets foot on the earth as a man. And yet we'll be reading this Old Testament book through the lens of the birth story of Jesus. In other words, we'll be studying the rise of King David, which foreshadows the birth of King Jesus. And we'll be exploring how the Bible invites us to see Jesus Christ as the subject of ancient prophecy and the fulfillment of all of God's promises to his people. In fact, we'll end up not only working through 1 Samuel, but we'll actually move into 2 Samuel starting in 2018 as well. So we'll be um, in these two books for the foreseeable future because not only did the rise of King David foreshadow Jesus' birth, but the reign of King David foreshadows the ministry of Jesus on the earth. And so this morning, as we jump into 1 Samuel, really what, what we're jumping into is pretty complicated. In that First and Second Samuel both record uh, a, a history of major shifts in the religious and the political life of ancient Israel. The story takes place in cities and sanctuaries and battlefields and palaces, and yet it begins this morning with a humble, barren, small-town woman named Hannah. And like Hannah, the nation of Israel was small and it was barren, but God had a plan. Let's see what that plan was. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, God, we're, again, grateful to be gathered together as your people. Grateful, Lord, that we can come and pray your word and read your word and sing your word. Uh, And God, have your spirit proclaim your word to us this morning. And we pray, Father, that as we go to it, Lord, that we would see in your word revealed for us this king. This King who has come and this King who is coming, your Son, Jesus. And I pray, Father, that it would give to us the hope that it promises, the peace that it promises, the joy that it promises to know and to love and to serve this King. And so, God, be with us by your Spirit in these next few moments as we go to your Word and teach, encourage, shape, mold, comfort in the ways that only you can. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's set the scene a little bit in terms of what we're stepping into in 1 Samuel. 
Right? First Samuel begins with a country, Israel, that is falling apart. In the Hebrew Bible, 1 Samuel comes immediately after the book of Judges, which is a a book that describes a time in Israel's history uh, when they were ruled by often corrupt judges. And their corrupt leadership throughout and over time leads the country into spiritual, moral, and political decay. And the book of Judges ends with this This really haunting line, the very last line in the book of Judges says, in those days, the days of Samuel where we're starting out now, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the onset of a new dark age is is upon Israel. And and the history of Israel, if you study it at all, is, is very much characterized by very high highs and very low lows. The onset of a new dark age is upon them. There's tremendous upheaval and there is growing power beginning to surround them, namely coming from Philistia or the Philistines who would soon attack. In the middle of this turmoil, we're brought into the life of an insignificant town, Ramah. In the middle of Ephraim, which is essentially the hill country. We're brought into this insignificant town that's inhabited by an insignificant man, Elkanah. Who is married to a seemingly insignificant woman, Hannah who was culturally insignificant, surely, because she was barren. She was unable to have children. She was unable to produce children. And what we find out from 1 Samuel chapter 1 is that this man, Elkanah, had two wives. He had Hannah and he had Peninnah. And Peninnah, contrary to Hannah, had borne to Elkanah many children, where Hannah had borne him none. In fact, uh, we don't have this explained for us here in 1 Samuel, but it's, but it's actually likely that Elkanah took Peninnah as his second wife precisely because Hannah could not provide children for him. And so he would have no legacy. He would not be able to produce heirs. And we come to find out um, again, just from this very simple chapter that Elkanah is a, a, is a faithful man. He's faithful to, to, to the traditions of his people, to the traditions of Israel, so much so that year after year they go to Shiloh where the tabernacle, the place where God's presence dwells, he goes there yearly and he worships. He brings sacrifices to God in this place. And it's in this place, it's in Shiloh, at this tabernacle, at this place where the presence of God dwells, that we meet the priest, Eli, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Eli is a burnout priest, respected for his position, but although outwardly impressive, inwardly he is dead inside. And we meet also his two sons brazenly sinful sons, utterly unfit for ministry, utterly unfit to be priests, and yet here we are. The corrupt leadership of the judges has filtered its way down to the priests 
and to the people. And it's in the middle of all this that Elkanah and his family sit down to share a meal. They're feasting according to the traditions of their people. And it was a feast in which wives would receive for themselves portions of the sacrifices that were given to God according to the amount of children that they had. And so, of course, this is a moment of great victory for Peninnah. And it's a moment of great shame for Hannah. And Peninnah makes no attempt to be subtle about that reality. In fact, it tells us in 1 Samuel that she antagonizes Hannah in this moment. And so if you think your Thanksgiving meal was awkward, imagine this meal, right? Uh, There are two wives, and one of them is clearly, at least in the eyes of the culture, superior to the other in her ability to provide for Elkanah a legacy, a heritage. And so if we could just kind of jump into Hannah's heart and soul and shoes in that moment and imagine the shame and the pain and it all in that moment becomes too much for her. She weeps and she can't bring herself to eat. And so finally what we find out happens is that she gets up and she leaves the table um, and she goes to the tabernacle. She goes to the tabernacle to pray. And that's where we pick up in verse 8. And this is what it says. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? But after they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed. And prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And here's what I want us to understand, though, about this moment. Hannah's barrenness is obviously deeply distressing for her. It's viscerally painful, right? It's not some outward, abstract reality. She's just sat in front of her family, sharing a meal that clearly highlighted her barrenness. And yet, her barrenness is more than just a personal issue. It wasn't just that Hannah really wanted to have a child to care for and to enjoy for her personal fulfillment. That's not why she's praying this prayer in verse 11. It's not just that she wants to escape social ridicule. That's not what's at the heart of Hannah's prayer here. You see, God told His people from the outset in Genesis that they were to be fruitful and to multiply. It's, the, it's the, the, the command of God, the initial command of God over all of God's people. And God continues this theme in the Bible when He comes to Abraham and He says that from Abraham He will make a great nation, one 
whose offspring would outnumber the stars. Now obviously, as a descendant of Abraham, and as someone who believes in that promise, Hannah knows that for that promise to be fulfilled, Abraham's people, Israel, needed to conceive and bear children. And so Hannah's barrenness was both personally uncomfortable in that she was ridiculed for it, but it was theologically significant for her because she was unable to participate in the propagation of God's covenant promises in the world. And here's the irony. In verse 5, we were told that Hannah's womb wasn't closed by coincidence, but that the Lord himself had closed it. That the Lord had closed her womb. Now here's the thing. Again, I think we can read this and go, okay, so what? As we continue reading 1 Samuel, what we'll come to understand and what we'll come to know is that Hannah isn't the only barren one in this story. You see, the nation of Israel is barren too. It is descended into spiritual, moral, and political decay, and it produces no glory for God. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The nation brings shame to God's name. And this comes in view as we read the interaction between Eli and Hannah at the tabernacle. So let's, let's read verse 12 through 18. It says this, As Hannah continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation." Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And so here here we have a priest in Eli who sees so little prayer that he can't recognize the difference between earnest prayer and a drunk. Eli is part of this corrupt leadership that came to be during the time of the judges. Who by their active disobedience and by their passive apathy have led Israel into this state of ruin where the temples are so unfrequented, where the place where God's glory dwells is so unfrequented that the priest himself couldn't recognize the earnest prayers of a faithful woman. And what we begin to see is a theme developing. 
the seemingly powerful people in this story antagonize the faithful. Right? Penina thinks that purely by virtue of her ability to produce children that she is significant. And the culture would have reinforced that idea. And the same is true of Eli. Eli holds the position of priest. He's revered. He's respected because he holds that position. And both of them heap wounds upon Hannah. And so although you have powerful and fruitful people in this narrative, none of which are Hannah. What we come to see is the reality is that it is not the powerful or the fruitful that are the faithful. And that those two things should not necessarily be equated because although Peninnah is fruitful and although Eli is powerful, Hannah is the one who is faithful. And so what we, what we begin to see developing before us is, is Israel in a kind of upside-down world. Things are not as they seem in Israel. The powerful and the fruitful are in fact not the faithful. Instead, the powerful and the fruitful antagonize the faithful. faithful. And so power and fruitfulness are what the world worships as success, but in our story, the powerful and the fruitful are not the heroes. They aren't the protagonists in our story. They're the villainous. They're the antagonists. You see, the faithful in our story this morning are the few, the weak, the barren, and the sincere. You see, what's about to happen in Israel, which is a wonderful, glorious, and miraculous thing that we'll see unfold throughout these narratives in First and Second Samuel, God's not going to use Peninnah or Eli or Hophni or Phinehas. He'll use Hannah. And he'll use her faithful sincerity to turn Israel right side up. I mentioned this earlier, but the reason, the reason that our author starts with Hannah is because her barrenness is a microcosm of Israel's barrenness. But neither Hannah nor Israel would remain barren. The faithful will bear fruit. Hannah will bear fruit. You see, in this descending dark age, in this darkest of times, in this darkest hour of Israelite history, God will intervene. He will open up the womb, not only of Hannah, but of Israel. And He will create a future for His people. Read verses 19 and 20. It says this. They rose early in the morning. That is Elkanah, Hannah, and his family. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. And they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. And the Lord 
remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And so what happens? I don't have to explain the word new, right? All right. If you have a question about that word, come and talk to me, um, which might lead us down a path I don't want to go down, but that's okay. Um, what happens? Hannah prays to the Lord. She pours out her soul, all of her anxiety, all of her distress, all of her despair. She lays it out before the Lord and then she boldly requests of the Lord that she would bear a son. And in verse 19, Hannah's request of God that he would remember her is honored. God remembers Hannah. He hears the prayers of his faithful servant and unto the barren Hannah a son is given. And Hannah calls him Samuel, which means asked for, the, the one who is asked for. And Samuel, as we'll discover during our journey through First and Second Samuel, will end up guiding Israel through a period of political and liturgical chaos. And in the process, through his leadership, by the grace of God, he will lay the foundation for a new order in a nation that is no longer ruled by judges, but by kings. And the establishment of the temple, a permanent dwelling place for God, instead of the movable tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And so if you know the Christmas story, maybe this story sounds familiar. In fact, it's eerily similar my contention this morning is that that's by design. It's, it's similar because the whole Bible is either pointing forward to or looking back at Jesus. And so the whole story in 1 Samuel is a looking forward to the day when Israel, who was barren, would be made fruitful. The time when God's people would no longer bring shame to the name of God, but glory as they were always intended. And so what happens in the story of Christmas? Well, much like in this moment, Jesus enters into a world in chaos. Rome rules Israel and wicked rulers reign, both in Rome and in Israel, whether it's Herod or Tiberius. The nation has not heard from a prophet in over 400 years. The voice of the Lord has been absent from the Lord's people. They're wayward. They're hopeless. They have fallen into a spiritual, moral, and political decay. 
And yet God in His sovereignty, God in His kindness, remembers His people, remembers His promises to that people to make them a faithful and fruitful people. And so He comes to an insignificant town, namely Bethlehem, to an insignificant man, a carpenter, Joseph, and to a seemingly insignificant Virgin Mary's womb, He gives life where there wasn't life. And a son is given. God's people are given a son. And not just a son this time, but this time it is the son. It is the son of God, the son of man, who himself would lead God's people through every chaos in every age and in the process lay the foundation for a new order in the rule of the king of the universe. Establishing a new temple by His Spirit, a new dwelling place for His people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. And by His coming, the seemingly powerful and the seemingly fruitful are overthrown by the faithful and the meek who will inherit the earth, as Jesus says in Matthew 5. And so this is the story that we get to not only look back at and celebrate during this Advent season, but it's also the wonder and the glory that we will behold in the day to come. Because just like in due time, Samuel came to Hannah. In due time, brothers and sisters, the Christ who came will come again. And He will make all things new. And so, brothers and sisters, the the good news in the story of Samuel is that we don't have to be powerful and we don't have to be fruitful. We only need to be faithful and allow God to do His work. It's the same good news that comes to us in the coming of Jesus. We don't have to be powerful. We don't have to be fruitful. We need to be faithful to Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, this good news is not just good news for Israel in Samuel's day or for Rome and for Israel and the world in Jesus' day, but it is good news for us now, right now. I, see, I think we tend to look at the story of Jesus, particularly the coming of Jesus, the incarnation, the stepping into our reality of Jesus as sort of this odd like thing we don't really know what to do with. It was good news back then, but I've still got to face these things today. And I know that at some point he's coming back again, but it doesn't really register. And so we tend to look at it as either a past event to celebrate or a future reality to hope for. And those aren't bad things, but they're not holistic things. Meaning there's something that we miss out on if we don't allow this story, this wondrous new reality that has been forged for us in the coming of Jesus, to bear its weight on our life today. Because you see, both the story of Samuel and the story of Jesus show us how we can live in a world in chaos. I don't think that it would be shocking 
or revelatory in any way for me to say this morning that our churches, and note that I'm starting with churches, our churches and our nation have fallen into spiritual, moral, and political decay. We are wayward and we're hopeless. We need a miracle we can't provide. We may seem powerful and we may have an appearance of fruit that we often like to broadcast with extravagant celebration. But inside, if we take honest stock, and again, I like to think of this primarily in terms of the church, we'll find that we're empty. We'll find that we're broken. We'll find that we worship the same things that everybody else worships. We worship power and we worship fruitfulness, the ability to get things done. That's in part why Christians have been complicit in electing some people that probably shouldn't be elected. And so brothers and sisters, what the world needs now in this chaos is for the barren faithful to become fruitful by the power of God. Our hearts and our churches need a revolution. Brothers and sisters, now is the time for real, honest, difficult, bold, brave Christianity. We should shed our tears like Hannah and we should pray bold prayers like she did, begging God to remember His promises to save people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We should sue Him effectively for the grace that He owes us because of His crucified, resurrected, and reigning Son, Jesus. And we should do all that waiting patiently because in due time, the sun is coming back. In due time, the sun will return for good and he will make all things new for good. Eternity will be reigned by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, as we said when we lit the candle, we have hope. Hannah's situation seemed hopeless. Israel and Jesus' situation seemed hopeless. Our situation in this moment might seem hopeless. This, this abstract idea of a perfect place where no sin exists and where we are all uh, not only loved by God, but we enjoy loving one another. All of that may seem hopeless in the middle of all of this, but God is calling us in the midst of that chaos, in spite of what may be perceived as barrenness, to petition Him for His promises. Because the promises that God makes always come to pass. 
And so we have hope, friends, in this chaotic world. Because God remembers His people. He remembers us. He's made us faithful in Jesus and He'll make us fruitful by the Spirit for His glory. And then He'll send His Son to us forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning. We're grateful, God, that in a world filled with chaos, a world that worships power and fruitfulness, God, you sent your son Jesus, weak and faithful. And Lord, it is through him that you have accomplished the work that could not be accomplished by any man in any place, in any time, anywhere. You have made your people righteous. And Lord, you've given that people a hope with which to live in the middle of the chaos. And so God, we beg and we plead and we ask you, God, to make us faithful. And Lord, we beg and we plead and we ask, God, that our faithfulness would be turned to fruitfulness for your glory and for our joy. Because, God, we don't want to be perceived of as saved. We want to be saved. We don't want to be perceived as your people. We want to be your people. We don't want to look like we've got it all together. We want to have it all together, not because we're fixed and perfect, but because Jesus is perfect. And so God, help us. We need you. And we pray expecting you to answer us, God, according to your promises. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.